0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster, I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this episode, we'll be discussing Jeremy Corbyn's latest travails over anti-Semitism and a row brewing over trees in Sheffield. I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Picard, our Chief Political Correspondent, Editorial Director Robert Shrimsley, Deputy Comment Editor Miranda Green, plus BBC reporter Dina Sophos. Thank you all for joining, and if you enjoy this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it automatically every Saturday morning. This has to have been one of Jeremy Corbyn's most troublesome weeks as Labour leader. Concerns that anti-Semitism is rife within his party grew as it transpired that Mr Corbyn had defended an offensive mural in London that featured several Jewish tropes. The Jewish community held a protest in Parliament Square where many Labour and Conservative MPs turned out to protest at how he was handling the situation. The Labour leader has since promised to take a zero-tolerance approach to anti-Semitism but have his actions spoken to his words. Jim Picard, let's begin with this. You know, it's cast a shadow across Mr. Corbyn's leadership for the past two years that anti-Semitism keeps coming back again and again and is causing very bad headlines and questions over the moral
2: fibre of Mr. Corbyn and his leadership. So what's going on? So it's all very complicated, but I think the things that people need to know are that firstly, this has been a recurring theme for a couple of years. You had the inquiry led by Shami Chakrabarti a couple of years ago, which some saw as a whitewash. Um, you had Ken Livingstone, the former mayor of London, being suspended, and he remains suspended even now. And it came back again on Friday because of the mural issue that you raised. It also emerged that more than 70 uh, labour activists have been suspended with allegations of anti-Semitism and the big rally. And then the thing which really uh, sort of capped his difficult week was the revelation on Wednesday night that Christine Shawcroft, who's the chair of Labour's internal disputes panel, had basically backed someone called Alan Bull, who was a candidate for Labour in Peterborough, who'd been sharing Holocaust denial online. And she had sent an email to Labour's internal Sort of mechanism for dealing with this you know, it was probably wrong to suspend them and it should be reconsidered and it seemed to be a kind of internal party political thing and we shouldn't be wasting resources on it and all the rest of it and this only came to light because it was leaked to the Daily Mail and the Times and she has since resigned but the fact that you had someone who's meant to be in charge with dealing with this stuff taking the side of inverted commas, a holocaust denier inverted commas, is the bit that has really enraged people
1: We'll come back to Christine Shawcroft in a moment, but this has all really gone back to Facebook and groups and all this sort of thing, and what really kicked off this route again, because in the Labour Party, it's actually been quite quiet. everyone of been on side with Jeremy since last year's general election. Then we had all the Russia stuff, which we've talked about in previous weeks. But then this is really sort of just throwing a can of petrol on the fire at the moment. And the, what you describe as the moderate MPs feel this is proof that he's really not up to being leader. And it's all to do with Facebook groups. He was a member of many years ago, so still a member in some cases, where he liked certain posts and there was a lot of anti-Semitism and the defence for Mr Corbyn is he wasn't aware this was going on but that was broken
2: by this mural yeah you know we have to consider the side of Corbyn supporters and how they see this I think up until Wednesday night it was possible even if you're sceptical about this to claim that Jeremy Corbyn was on these Facebook groups, but some of them had more than a 1,000 members. And unless he was spending hours and hours there every single day, would he have necessarily seen the most offensive material on these pro-Palestine, brackets, anti-Israel Facebook groups? Again, with the mural, his excuse was that he had commented in a hurry and his comment was all about freedom of expression in terms of he didn't like to see murals being taken down. And there was no conclusive proof that he A, realised it was an anti-Semitic mural and, B, agreed with the anti-Semitic sentiment... Where things have got more difficult for him is that Christine Shawcroft, this person who resigned as the sort of internal disputes moderator on Wednesday night, is a Corbyn ally, a really close Corbyn ally. She took that role in January with the support of Corbyn and his allies. And she was also director of Momentum, which is the Corbyn support group. So this idea that there are pockets of anti-Semitism in Labour Party, which is the phrase Corbyn uses, which all sounds very vague, he is not yet conceding or accepting that these pockets are very, very, very close to him. They are his supporters.
1: Robert Shrimsley, this is where it gets very problematic for Mr Corbyn because, as Jim said, there was an inquiry led by Shami Chakrabarti, who is a shadow cabinet minister in Labour and former think tank um, leader. She did that inquiry, which basically came back and said Labour has not got a problem with anti-Semitism, it's just pockets. But that seems to have been proven wrong by the
3: events of this week. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been a very difficult week for Jeremy Corbyn. If you take a step back, I think it's it's fair to work on the assumption that Jeremy Corbyn would not wish to be anti-Semitic, would not wish to be seen as anti-Semitic, and almost certainly doesn't think of himself in those terms. But the problem is it comes down to an attitude within the hard left, a historic attitude that goes back, you know, to almost the formative years of Jeremy Corbyn's politics, in which people... Essentially, self describe themselves as anti racist, believe they are completely virtuous, and therefore cannot imagine that anything they do could possibly be wrong. And and so, anyone who says it is must have another motive, must have a a plot to be undermining them and Jeremy Corbyn. On the other hand, you get to the point this week when a demonstration is arranged by all the major groups of the Jewish community a demonstration against anti-Semitism and the first reaction of these people is to stage a counter-demo saying we don't believe in anti-Semitism and after the rally is over they start sending threats to the Labour MPs who went along to show moral support. You have Harriet Harman, you know, deputy leader of the Labour Party once, interim leader of the Labour Party, being denounced for, quotes standing with Tory Jews. You have David Lammy, um an MP with an incredibly impeccable record of anti-racism being denounced and facing threat of deselection from his General Management Committee because he went to this rally to show support to people who feel frightened by anti-Semitism. It's a
2: quite staggering thing. The thing that's quite depressing is the sort of level of fake news produced in defence of the Corbynistas and thousands of people sharing these things, claiming that oh, it's the first time that these Labour MPs have protested against racism and look whose side they're on. You know, the idea that David Lammy or Harriet Harman haven't been on a gazillion anti-racist marches and rallies in their lives, of course they have, and yet these lies are spread so very easily. And the point I would make as well about the counter-protest in the corner of Parliament Square was that it was organised by a group who I think they're called Jewish Voice for Labour and... They were set up relatively recently as a kind of group to prove that Corbyn and Corbyn's politics has some support among some Jewish people, very much outnumbered by the main event in Parliament Square. Now, Corbyn was interviewed by a news organisation called Jewish News last night. In that, he was asked about Jewish voice for Labour and he said, well, I don't belong to them, but you know they're good people. So you literally have Jeremy Corbyn, who on the one hand wants to stand Are side they good by- people, by the way, Jim, when you said that? You know, is there is there something wrong
3: with
1: Jewish voice for Labour?
3: Actually, let's just clarify this. Jewish Voice for Labour has prominent members who've actually already been expelled from the Labour Party or suspended from the Labour Party for anti-Semitism. That is who these good people are. It's, it's a truly un- unbelievable situation. I can think of no other minority group, you know, um, Muslims, gays, any other group who saying we feel deeply hurt and frightened would face this kind of hostility and this kind of counterattack from a Labour movement. I mean, this is the Labour Party, for heaven's sake. It's supposed to be in the vanguard of anti-racism.
2: I did interview the chief executive of one of the organising groups on Monday and and he said, we seem to be a special case, Jewish people, where we have to make the case that we are being discriminated against and treated badly. You wouldn't get that with any other minority group. But just to play devil's advocate, one thing I think they got wrong with the rally was to explicitly be a kind of anti-Corbyn rally and then Labour MPs go along to that rally. You can see why some diehard Corbyn supporters would then be crossed with those MPs. I kind of think personally that they should have just presented the rally as a standing up for Jewish rights and against discrimination and all the rest of it, and they did possibly personalise it and thus giving an excuse to Corbyn's supporters to go on the attack against moderate MPs.
3: I mean, I think there is an important point here. Um, I saw some people who are both staunch opponents of anti-Semitism but also supporters of Jeremy Corbyn making the argument that Labour does have a problem with anti-Semitism, but it's also true that Corbyn's opponents have used this as a line of attack against him. But the clear point here is it does have a problem with anti-Semitism, and if it deals with the problem, then his opponents will not be able to use this as a line of attack. And the standard position of the Corbynites up till now and his major cheerleaders has been that this problem does not exist. Therefore, we don't have to tackle it, we don't have to deal with it, and anybody who says otherwise is a traitor.
1: I think the thing is, Jim, that obviously you know there's people, as you mentioned, Ken Livingstone, you know, George Galloway, who was formerly in the Labour Party, as well, have had you know controversial views on this question. But I think because this all began with the Mure, Mr. Corbyn got involved with on that Facebook group, and the revelations of these other Facebook groups where anti-Semitism was rife, I think the Jewish community felt that yes, that it is in there in the Labour Party, we know that, but it stems from the top. And you know, I've spent Seven years writing reporting on politics before Mr. Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party. And I can't remember one before he became writing one story at The Telegraph or at The Spectator, which are not particularly Labour-friendly organisations, about anti-Semitism. But then Mr Corbyn has become leader of the Labour Party, and it's something that, you know, you must agree this too. It feels like, you know, every fortnight, every month, we're writing about this and again and again.
2: Yeah, bear in mind that Labour membership has swollen from around 200,000 members to about 600,000 members And a lot of those individuals would have previously been in fringe left-wing groups such as the Socialist Workers' Party and that kind of thing, where the very, very strong anti-Israel, borderline anti-Semitic, in some cases, views entering the party. But, I mean, to play devil's advocate for the second time, it reminds me a little bit of when UKIP's leadership used to say to us in these local elections, We've put forward 5,000, 10,000 candidates for council elections and you have seized upon the very small handful with completely balmy views about gay donkeys and about gay marriage causing floods. And, you know, that's not necessarily representative of the entire UKIP party. You can see a bit where Corbyn supporters would say, well, this person in Peterborough even though we disagree with him. That doesn't mean that all 600,000 of us uh, have similar views. But, I, you know, I'd like to single out a few people like Owen Jones, who, massive Corbyn fanboy, I think he's been really good on this and he is trying to say to Corbyn followers, look, Jeremy has said there's a problem, there is a problem. Can we just stop doing this whole accusation that the whole thing's a smear because it's just making things worse?
3: Jim's absolutely right in one sense that all parties have unpleasant fringes, you know, and sometimes they're not just fringes. The Conservative Party has some serious allegations to answer about the way it tolerates Islamophobia. So this is not a problem that's unique to one party. What I think is different here is that it seems like the Labour Party and the Labour leadership doesn't actually understand that it has this problem. Uh, Some commentator wrote this week, I thought rather brilliantly, that it's been as if Jeremy has been standing up to his ankles in a sewer and can't detect the stench. And he, in his own letter to the Jewish community after the rally, made a very interesting point, which is that left anti-Semitism is often more subtle and not as simple to detect, and that actually part of the problem is that All kinds of anti-Semitic tropes get munched up together. You have people who are from the hard left who are obviously A, anti-Israel and B, anti-capitalist and portray Jews as members of international capitalist conspiracies. And these go to the very heart of the anti-Semitic tropes that we're talking about. And so that sometimes these people can't actually see what they're doing. And I think one of the fundamental points and one of the things I would certainly look to see within anything that Jeremy Corbyn does try to bring forward is an attempt to educate his own party as to what is, for the sake of argument, acceptable criticism of political behaviours in this country and outside it and what is lapsing into anti-Semitic tropes.
2: Yeah, and I, I picking up on your point a second ago, I agree with you that... I think Jeremy Corbyn probably does believe that he is opposed to anti-Semitism, but he is very much anti-Israel. He is anti-rich people, anti-capitalism. And that anti-Israeli, anti-capitalism bit seems to have blinded him to the people standing alongside him whose anti-Israeli views have verged and merged into anti-Semitism. And finally, Robert, I guess the question is, what can Mr Corbyn do about
1: this now? Because he said in his letter that he wrote to the Jewish community leaders on Wednesday that he's very angry about this and is very ashamed and will do something about it, which I think is a big way from where he was before during the Chakrabarti review period. But you know, there's clearly still more needs to be done. You know, this row is it's well into a week now and there's no sign of it stopping as we record this on Thursday afternoon. So what would you like to see him do to show that he actually
3: means and actually understands what's going on? I think there are two or three things one can look for. I thought his letter and his words for the most part, with a couple of exceptions, were quite encouraging. And if he'd been able to say these things with conviction a year and a half ago, much of this row wouldn't be happening. Um, But I think now, for one thing, I would like to see Jeremy Corbyn on television saying this. He's done it all through statements. He did an interview last night with a newspaper. But, you know, I would like to see, I think people want to see him on television broadcasting so we can see his face as he says it and judge him a little bit. Secondly, while the words are good, they have to be backed up by action. So you want to see expeditious treatment of some of the worst cases in the Labour Party, you want to see, there has to be due process, people are entitled to answer accusations against them, but as I think the Labour Party has acknowledged, it's got to be quicker and sharper on dealing with this. I do think they're going to have to think about themselves a little bit and take a hard look at themselves, because one of the issues with the Christine Shawcroft thing we've referred to is that when faced with Um, accusations that someone is essentially perpetrating Holocaust denial, her instinctive response was to say, it's a smear. Her default position was, it was, it's a smear, rather than, well, this could be true. And I can't think of other minority groups who would face the same thing. And finally, I think Jeremy Corbyn's got to go back to his own people, his own hardcore supporters, and say, no, you've got to stop this, this isn't good enough. I'm not putting up with the way you're attacking Labour MPs and attacking people who are raising legitimate concerns about what's being done to a minority community. You need to get your own house in order and stop the sort of furious over-partisan loyalty in which you treat me like a messiah who can do nothing wrong. Actually, you've got to step up and fight anti-Semitism too.
2: And Jim, very, very briefly, how bad is this row for Mr. Corbyn? So we come back to this time and time again whereby things that we, the mainstream media and traditional politicians find abhorrent or unpleasant or we think will undermine a political figure, we saw it with Trump in the States, actually doesn't necessarily happen because there's such a sort of powerful backlash online through social media, where I have no idea how many people online are believing the mainstream media version of Jeremy Corbyn and anti-Semitism and how many are believing the counter-narrative that it's all one big massive smear. Um, We were talking to some pollsters earlier in the week and they were basically saying this will probably harden people's existing views whether they're for Corbyn or whether they're against Corbyn. Other big political
1: story of this week was trees. There's a row brewing in the northern city of Sheffield about the axing of 17,500 oaks in an effort to fix the city's pothole problem, but the middle class residents are very angry and have been taken to the streets. There's been protests, injunctions, police, private security and even a benefit concert featuring Jarvis Cocker of the band Pope to protect the trees. Dino, so you're the BBC reporter who first broke this story on a national scale. Just give us an outline of what's been going on in Sheffield?
4: Well, Seb, this goes back to 2012 when Sheffield Council signed this contract with the Spanish multinational Amy. It's a £2.2 billion contract to improve the state of the city's roads. Part of that contract was dealing with trees. This is a PFI contract, of course. Nick Clegg, who is the MP for Sheffield Hallam, you during know, the coalition government, managed to secure a billions quid's worth of funding towards this. So the Sheffield Council will say, we were forced into this PFI contract, we had to do it this way. One of the big contentious issues here is that the contract was redacted because it's commercially sensitive. So mm. huge amounts of the contract weren't visible. So the campaigners said, well, you know, there's something in here that we think is leading Amy, the company and the council to cut down healthy trees because it, you know, makes commercial sense. Now, the council and Amy refute that completely and eventually the Information Commissioner forced Sheffield Council to show, to publish some redacted bits of this contract. Which showed that there was a figure in this contract in black and white that said 17,500, which is half of the city's street trees, would be cut down. Then, what that led to was the sort of scenes you've been seeing on social media. And I don't know if you, you know, I think you've seen our film, which are scenes, quite frankly, that you just don't see on British streets suburban streets in this country. I mean, What they did eventually was put metal barriers around trees to stop people going inside. The company Amy hired private security to monitor people, to film them, to use... Eventually they started using what they called reasonable force to get people out. And when that didn't work, the police stepped in. And what you saw in the last few weeks was about 30 police officers attending the felling of one tree on a residential street in Sheffield. Indeed. The scenes that we've seen, Miranda up there have just
1: kind of you know spoken to so many things I think about British politics and is something I've written about this week because if you look at what matters in people's lives you know the discussions that we often talk about on this podcast don't translate to people you know the saying that all politics is local I think is particularly true for this incident because trees do matter a lot to people it's the environment it's what's outside their window things they speak to them and the fact that this as Dino was saying this contract was held secret then it came out with this target number allegedly it's all just given people this real sense of anger about what is going on and how can we not stop this.
5: Yes absolutely and I think it's become a huge national story because people are quite rightly have an emotional attachment to trees Um, but also because it does show us how disconnected we have become from some of the way that public services are delivered and you know this idea of, of what's wrong with outsourcing um, you can have an argument about you know whether the money is well spent when the contracts are uh, structured in a certain way whether it's more efficient or not you know abstract conversations about whether you get it effectively of the public sector borrowing requirement etc et but when that leads as it has done in Sheffield to people feeling they have no control over their own lived environment. Environment, it actually turns into something else, and something that speaks to, as you've said, what's gone wrong on a in a wider sense. And I think it also applies to parallel discontents that people have over housing policy, over how they're treated by the welfare system, over their day to day experience when it goes wrong of uh, contracted out health services. And it's something that should be taken extremely seriously. Um, I think also this question of the redacted contract, this level of secrecy shouldn't actually be acceptable when you are providing public services. And so I think that moment when the information commissioner forced them to reveal this information about the so-called target, I mean, they say it's not a target, as Dino's pointed out. That was quite an important moment as well. And actually, this has been such a sort of heartening story in a way, because you can see sort of street politics taking off in Sheffield in a quite sort of carnival atmosphere. You know, people from all backgrounds participating in the protest in a way that is making them feel that they maybe do have a say in their own lived environment. And it very much reminds you of some of the great resistors in political history. You know, I'm thinking of Jane Jacobs and her kind of heroic campaigns in New York City, where she protested against the projects being built and protested against people's houses being bulldozed against their will because unfortunately, you know, with urban planning sometimes there are these utopian views about what should happen to a city that pay no attention whatsoever to what the local people actually want and if you come through on the trains through Croydon at the moment you can see a kind of futuristic horror story being built around us because business decisions are being taken without regard for people's day-to-day experience and when they rebel against that there's something rather delightful about it.
1: And I think Dino this is the thing about the council they've been criticised a lot for their behaviour in the film. You made for the BBC you end up chasing the council leader out of an Ikea car park who It was the police car park actually. A police she car- was,
4: she was, <laughs> there was an Ikea in the background but she was having a meeting with the police about the issue of police resources but yeah.
1: Indeed and and the sense that you've just got is they've not handled you know this particularly well they've been criticised by a lot of local residents, not just for the secrecy, but also just not for grasping why people are angry because when you've, you know, the scenes of private
4: security and 30 policemen for one tree, it's just bonkers. Look, what the council would say is that they conducted a survey, uh, one of those leaflets that goes through your door before this work started, and that nobody raised, the majority of people didn't raise an objection. That's what they say. Um, Lots of people I've spoken to, most people say they never had receive that leaflet the other thing that's interesting and i think the other th- thing that peter that kind of really riles some of the campaigners is this question of you know who are the council who are they working for are they working for the voters of sheffield or, or are they working for a, a private company and one of the interesting things that i heard when a councillor who's in charge of this contracts uh, brian lodge was interviewed on the local radio breakfast show he was asked you know about this redacted contract and he was asked you know so why is this contract redacted why can't you show the the people of sheffield what's in this contract and he said oh cuz it's commercially sensitive And I think a lot of people think, yeah. hang on a second, why is my councillor, my elected councillor, worried about about Amy's profits? Why are they not worried? Why are they not just saying, here you go, guys, this is what's in the contract. And they don't feel they're getting that from the council.
1: And and finally, Miranda, one of the things that I thought about this question of local leadership here is that local governments have been cut right back over the past couple of years. That when the Conservatives came into power back in 2010 and they had to bring down the deficit, um, they very much... Targeted local government funding because it doesn't receive the headlines of health or other areas. But um, this then resulted that councils like Sheffield had their budget gutted and had to go into more of these PFI contracts to do deals with the private sector that maybe weren't getting the scrutiny because, you know, if you're Amy, for example, you probably have a much better team together to be able to scrutinise and get a good deal for Amy than Sheffield Council over this. And I think it has exposed the real problems within local government. And there's huge cuts still to come to the core funding that goes from central government to local government. By 2020, it's going to be 77%, which again is going to make things very difficult. And you can see how, you know, not to defend Sheffield Council too much, but how they get stuck in the corner between a rock and a hard place on this. Sort of thing.
5: It's absolutely true that local government has borne the brunt of public sector cuts right back from 2010 with the beginning of the coalition austerity programme. Um, and I think that's very serious. And I think what we're seeing politically in terms of the broader landscape now is actually people starting to see how that's affected local services. And that's a dangerous moment for the government of the day when that starts to happen. And so you're right to sort of pull focus, as it were, and see that larger picture. I think this this question of whether the public sector is well enough equipped to negotiate with the private sector where there's some partnership deal is actually a perennial problem. I think that's a separate issue. I mean, for example, I knew somebody back in the 90s who worked for an enormous supermarket chain, and they had a huge legal department to fight every property or land purchase challenge from any local authority. And the local authorities were always doomed to fail. You know, this is a really serious, not symmetrical relationship when it comes to arguing the toss over legal priorities. But I think you were right earlier, actually, both of you, when you were saying it's actually about this question of who is it working for? And actually remembering again that public services and things arranged by local government are supposed to serve the people of that area and not to serve special... Other commercial interests is absolutely key. And also, I think on this policing issue, I mean, Dino, in your excellent film, I thought one of the most shocking aspects of it was actually the policing. And obviously, in Sheffield, that uh, force has a somewhat checkered history. Um, And speaking to friends of mine with relatives in those Sheffield areas where the protests have been going on, it's actually the policing now that's upsetting them more than anything else.
1: And very briefly, just one last thing, Dino, like where does this go from now, do you think?
4: Yeah, I, th- I think it's important to just say on the policing point that South Yorkshire police, you know, say that they have to be there when when there are people breaking the law, and that's what they're doing if they're stepping inside the barrier and they're putting themselves under vans, they have to be there. there there's a risk to the public, and it's a different balancing act for the police. You know, whether there needs to be 30 officers there, sometimes in riot gear, that's a question to be debated. What we have here now is a pause. I think the pressure was just too much on Sheffield City Council. I think you know, from my conversations, the private contractor, Jeremy Corbyn's office, Michael Gove, um, ev- everywhere you looked, the police, the PCC in Sheffield, there was so much pressure on them to call a halt that eventually I think the pr- pressure came became too much. So the, we've got this temporary pause. A lot of people are, are, are in Sheffield are kind of cynical saying, oh, is this just because of the local elections and are we going to find that they start the day after uh, polling day? We'll see. My, my sense is that it's a bad look for everybody. Nobody wants this to continue. And that's it for this week's episode
1: of FT Politics. Thank you to Jim, Robert, Miranda and Dino for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder and Joshua Oliver. Until next time, thanks for listening.